All right, 1 Peter 1, 6-9 says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right, so that is uh, sort of how this letter, this 2,000-year-old letter of First Peter opens up. And uh, let's spend the next 20 minutes or so exploring a little bit what Peter is trying to pass on to us. Let me start uh, the sermon with a list of things that improve through trauma. If we're honest with one another, we avoid trauma, we avoid conflict, because we're conditioned from our experiences to know that it's unpleasant. We don't want tension and hardship and conflict in our lives. But let's just pause for a kind of a lighthearted moment and point out some things that actually get better through trauma. For example, think about your pillow. The overwhelming majority of us slide into bed at night with a smile on your face and then you smash and slap and punch your pillow, right? In the process, the feathers in the pillow are getting spread out and your neck and your head will have a more comfortable sleep. And we feel guilty about this, so we call it fluffing. But the truth is you're a pillow beater, right? We all do it and we justify it because it leads to a better night's sleep. How about this? Have you guys ever thought about the concept of a, a medical residency for doctors? No one ever wants to go into the emergency room and have your doctor say, chill out, this is my first day on the job and I'm feeling really stressed right now. So what we do is we subject them to just four years of torture, right? And a, a medical resident gets yelled at by everybody in the hospital and they, get, they have to cycle around to all the different departments and, and uh, they get put in the most stressful situations possible and the thinking behind it is then when they're put in a normal role uh, everything will be a piece of a cake at that point right because they've been through the worst situations you could imagine anything after that is going to be easy all right things that improve through trauma what about fried chicken think about just a regular piece of chicken there's a lot of ways that you can cook and prepare that but the most delicious way is to cover it in a raw egg, dip it in flour, and then fry it in scalding oil. Think about that. That's messed up, especially the egg part, right? <laughs> Putting that on the chicken that you're going to eat. But the trauma of cooking fried chicken results in something really delicious. How about blue jeans? Nobody ever looks forward to putting on that store-bought pair of blue jeans the very first time, but after you've worn them for a year or so, that becomes one of your favorite things to own and wear. And, and the stores know that, so they even make the brand new jeans look like you've owned them for like five years, right? Even though we know it's going to take a year of breaking them in before they're really optimal. And here's a final example of something that's made better through trauma. Every washing machine has that central part that's called the what? The agitator. 
and that agitator is just beating your clothes, just twisting them and, uh, and striking against it over and over again. But in the process through the trauma, it's working the clean water and the detergent through your clothes so they come out clean. So all that to say, each one of us, myself included, dislikes trauma. We don't like experiencing unpleasant things. We hate tension and conflict with things uh, that we would not have chosen for ourselves. And if it was, like if I had time to talk to everybody here, myself included, we'd all admit we, we, we avoid trauma. We avoid conflict. It's not something that we enjoy. Um, but these half dozen or so examples maybe start to open our mind that sometimes in some situations, Conflict and trauma actually has a purpose and leads to a better version of something. Well, this is exactly the theme of the book of 1 Peter. And each Sunday afternoon this fall, we're studying just a few verses from this letter, 1 Peter. It's towards the end of your Bible that gives us reasons that God is explaining to us of how God sometimes accomplishes good things through trauma, through hardship, and through things that we would never, if we're honest, choose for ourselves. I want you guys to think back for a second in a moment of reflection over the last 17 or so months. All right? COVID has introduced an incredible amount of trauma in our hospitals, in our clinics, in our schools, in our churches, in our finances, in our personal relationships. Marriages are struggling. Friends can't get together. The future is more unknown than it's ever been. We can't do some of the recreational and social things that we used to do to unwind. Uh, people are dying. The supply chain is messed up. Discouragement and disagreement are everywhere. Does this mean that God's not in control? Does this mean that everyone's just on their own? Of course, the Bible's filled with places like 1 Peter that assures us that God does accomplish good things through hardship and trauma. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, and I'd like us to just study verses 6 through 9 in two parts. You can follow along in the bulletin uh, notes. In section 1, let's talk about the encouraging claims and teachings of 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. Like, there's something pretty discouraging in these verses. It says that everyone is going to experience trauma and hardship. There's a discouragement in that. Christianity is not going to make everything easier all the time. Christianity is not going to protect us from the hard things of life. It's a hard thing to wrap our heads around. Nevertheless, there's some encouraging claims inside these verses about what God's going to do through the hard stuff. Let's look for those in section 1. And then in section 2, let's wrap up with some tips for enduring suffering. There's some tips in these verses on how we can endure the hard things that we wouldn't want. All right, let's jump in. What are some encouraging claims and teachings uh, from 1 Peter 1, 6-9? I'd like to focus in on three things, and the first one is this. 1 Peter 1, 6-9 is telling us that trials and trauma and hardship refine the genuineness and the value of our faith. What is faith? Everybody here, at least in some tiny part, has a hope that God is in control in all things and is going to somehow work it out for his good and hopefully our good. Uh, That's a good starting point for what we mean when we say faith. And Peter is telling this group of people, his congregation, 2,000 years ago who are experiencing incredible persecution, that the first value, the first thing that God does through hard times is he refines us 
and he improves the genuineness and the value of our faith. Listen to what it says here in verses 6 to 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And these have come so that uh, the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there's a couple things that Peter is telling us in these verses. He's saying that trials are not punishment from God. Rather, he uses trials to uh, increase the genuineness of our faith. And then Peter mentions gold, which even the original audience would have understood, is more valuable in its refined state than it is in its initial state. Right? If you find a nugget of gold, you're excited. That's valuable. But then what do they do with that? They burn it down so that all the impurities are removed. And then after that fire, after that trial, the gold is actually more valuable. Like nobody goes up in a mountain stream and pulls out a gold bar or pulls out a gold necklace. Like you you kind of find that hunk of rock and then it has to be refined. And and, and at that point it increases in value. And that's really a beautiful uh, uh, insinuation of what Peter is telling us here about faith. He's saying that faith in its original form is beautiful and it's valuable, but it needs to be refined. It has to have the impurities and the immaturity burned out. And God is going to accomplish that through the hard and the traumatic and the unchosen things of life. So I'd like to invite you guys to just reflect for a moment. Is there anything about your trust? Is there anything about your spirituality? Is there anything about your faith that's just a little bit stronger and a little bit more helpful now than it was two or three years ago? And if something comes to your mind, it's undoubtedly because of some sort of trauma or hardship that you went through that brought that refining or that increased value. When I was a little kid, about the same age as my my own boys who were just very recently making a lot of noise in the back, I thought church was so boring. And the most boring part of my week was when everybody was singing. No offense to the musicians, music is beautiful. I didn't care for music, especially. Uh, We had these old green Lutheran hymn books, and when those got, like I can still remember the sound that those made when they were slid out of the pews, and that sound was like, it triggered me, right? Like, oh no. 20 minutes of the most boring part of my week. And I'd sometimes even just count in my head how long each song took. There was just nothing valuable to me about that singing time. It was awful. I couldn't stand it. Well, fast forward about 35 years, and uh, my father was withering away in a nursing home. Now, my father had a lot of really valuable possessions, military honors and medals, um, accolades from a distinguished career. But you guys know what it's like in nursing homes. There's crazy old people that walk around stealing everything because they don't know who they are or where they are. So we had to take anything of uh, monetary value out of his room and it was really heartbreaking. But one thing that my dad still had that was still incredibly meaningful to him was that old green Lutheran hymn book. And even though he had dementia, and even though there were some days when he just wasn't really quite in control of, uh, of understanding what was going on, there were other days when he was, and he would go sit by the sunlight, and he would take out that green Lutheran hymnal. And, and even though he was never a good singer, he would just read through the lyrics, which are, of course, the promises of God. Isn't that what our hymns are? They're the promises of God that, that, that keep us hopeful, even in hard times. 
So when I was first coming to faith, when I was first dragged into church, there was nothing in the world that was less valuable to me than that hymn book, right? Oh, I couldn't, couldn't stand it. And then you fast forward 30 years and I look at the value that those promises still held to my father, even though 10 years of uh, Parkinson's and dementia had, had, had taken away from who he had been in his youth and in his fullness. And I can't think of a better illustration of how the hard things of life refine us and make our hope and make our faith that much more genuine, that much more valuable. Uh, and I'm thankful for the way that uh, I learned that lesson through that old dusty hymnal. Peter goes on to tell us another thing that's really valuable through the trauma and the hardships of life. And he tells us uh, here at the second part of verse 7 that when our faith is exercised, it brings praise and honor and glory to God. So take another reflective moment and, and just see if God brings anything into your mind of a time when it maybe didn't make sense to be spiritually hopeful and it maybe didn't have a lot of uh, logical reasons that you would trust God in that hard thing, but nevertheless, you did or somebody else did and that faith exercised, that faith chosen brought praise and honor and glory to God. It's so powerful when it happens. The second part of 1 Peter 7 says, The genuineness of your faith, it's tested by fire, and it will be found to, to bring praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'll spare you guys the history lesson, but I want you to think back really quickly to about 33 AD. Who were the Christians in the world? When the Bible tells us that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, I mean, before the book of Acts starts, I mean, there's the 12 disciples, there's some of their family members, there's maybe some other miscellaneous characters. I mean, we're talking like 300, 400 tops. That's 33 AD. And I'm, I'm just talking history now. Even, even if you don't believe the Bible's true, I think most of you probably do. But then you get to around 200 AD, historically speaking, and there's hundreds of thousands of these Christ followers in the world. And uh, the Roman Empire is persecuting them, but they're in Europe, they're in Africa, they're in the Middle East, they're all over the place. And this phenomenon is best explained by this uh, uh, Roman writer named Tertullian, and he has this great quote. Um, a martyr is somebody who dies for their faith. And he gives this great quote. He says, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, in all these cities, you had these, these, these emperors, you had these magistrates saying, uh, this, this Christianity is bad, it's detrimental, we need to get rid of all the Christians. But somehow, inexplicably, you had Christians stepping up and saying, I won't take back my faith. This is what I believe and this is what I live for. Many of them were put to death, many of them were persecuted, and somehow the church spread into hundreds of thousands of people. Because Peter is telling us when our faith is exercised, when we choose faith, it brings praise and honor and glory to God. And people think to themselves, I, I want that. I want something to live for that's greater than uh, what I've been living for in the past. I know that's a really dramatic example. Uh, maybe you guys thought of something personally that was on a little bit of a lower level of a time when you chose faith. And it somehow brought honor and glory to God. And of course, this whole dynamic is only possible through a test, through hard times, through something that we wouldn't have chosen. And a third thing that Peter tells us here that's a good thing that comes through the bad things of life, a good thing that God accomplishes through persecution, is this, 
Choosing faith in trials and hardship increases our capacity for faith and joy. And if you guys look at what it says there in 1 Peter 1.8, it says, uh, Though you do not see him yet, talking about God, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. In other words, even when there's things in our life that aren't perfectly resolved, even when we're in the middle of that equation and we don't see the beautiful ending, we can still choose faith and choosing faith in trials and hardship, according to Peter, according to Scripture, increases our capacity to experience joy. Peter's teaching that even before God reveals to us what his goals and what his purposes were for us in that trauma or that trial, we still nevertheless grow in our ability to trust him and experience joy. I had to speak to a grief group once. I was invited to speak to this group at a hospital and I said I would do it not fully understanding what the assignment was. And it was a group of people that had all experienced a death of a loved one around the holidays. And so now the holidays were just a terrible time for them as a result of that loss. And yours truly was invited to come and speak to them. It was a tough assignment. I had no idea what to say. And I was sitting around one night listening to records and uh, I just felt like God put this thought into my mind. It doesn't happen a lot. I know when I have a really good thought, it's probably from God. And I was just thinking about musical composition, okay? Just think about if you were looking at the notes on the musical scale and you were writing out some sort of song. Like nobody would say the, the, the note A is, a, is good and the note D is bad. Nobody would see, say like a D sharp is bad but, but a C note is really good. A conductor, a, a composer, somebody who writes music, they would say, well, all the notes are equally important, and it's in their composition, it's in their relationship to one another that the beauty of the song comes out. And in the same way, I think, I, I think the same is true for grief, right? Like, the hard things of life aren't necessarily bad, and just getting a new puppy or having a sunny day isn't necessarily good. It's the, it's the conflict, it's the composition. It's putting the good next to the bad that really just brings out the depth and the compositional beauty of our spirituality. Um, it's through the really hard things of life that we're able to really appreciate the beautiful and the good things of life. Uh, on his... Uh, Actually, on his 72nd birthday, my father passed away, and so for about two weeks, we mourned his loss. We traveled back to Wisconsin. We, I officiated the funeral and all that stuff, and, and I just had some really dark thoughts on the drive back home. For two days, I'm just driving, and just the, the darkness of life, losing somebody, it's, it can be foggy. It can be really dark. It can be really hopeless. Um, and then when I got back into town, I just felt like the right thing to do was to just throw myself back into being a husband, being a dad, being a coach, being a pastor, all the, resp all the good responsibilities that I had. And I don't know how this will impact you guys. But the first day that I was back coaching, just standing on the field on a sunny day with all the kids running around, that was like my happiest day of the season as a coach. A couple days later, I asked my wife to meet me at Olive Bees for lunch, and we just sat there by the, it's shoulder season, so you get a good table with a beautiful view, so we're just looking out at the mountain, and we don't normally get dessert, and they brought out this pumpkin cheesecake, and my wife and I both just tasted it and looked at each other, and there was just a joy in that moment that we never had 
in any of the previous months of dates or time together. Uh, Choosing faith in trials and hardships, it increases our capacity for faith in the future as well as to experience joy. I wish I had better examples. That sort of sounds counterintuitive, that trusting God in a hard time would increase our capacity for faith and joy. But I'm just, I'm coming right out of some of that. And I can tell you guys that Peter's absolutely on the money when he gives us that encouragement. Well, let's wrap up with two tips on how we can endure these hard traumas that we would never choose. The first one is simple and it's persuasive, and I think it'll stay with you. And it's this Peter's telling these people that are going through really hard times to remember that suffering is temporary. Okay? Look at 1 Peter 1 6. And look at this clause that he sneaks in. He's talking to this congregation that is experiencing really hard persecution. They're probably losing their jobs. They're they're probably losing their houses and they're standing in the community because of their faith. And he sneaks this in, though for a little while. Though for a little while. And sometimes we kind of think as Christians, like maybe we're going to have to suffer for our whole lives. Peter says, though for a little while while you've been grieved by various trials. So an important thing to point out is that even Peter is not above reminding his audience that one of the ways to get through trauma and hardship is to remember that it doesn't last forever. It's just temporary. You might be going through a relational hard thing right now with a spouse or a child or a coworker. You're trusting God that things are going to work out for good, but it's still really hard. You dread going to work. You dread coming home. You dread the teacher-parent conference or whatever the situation is. Just remember God will do good things through that trial, through that hardship, and remember that it's only temporary. You know, sometimes when we feel compelled to memorize a Bible verse, our guilt drives us to a really long Bible verse or a whole Bible verse. What if you guys wrote on a little post-it note this part of 1 Peter 1, 6, though for a little while? What if you put that on your mirror? What if you wrote that in your Bible? Just to remind yourself that that hard thing, in the grand scheme of things, it's just for a little while. This last summer, I started running, and I downloaded this uh, abdominal workout app on my phone. And like it tells you how many sit-ups and leg lifts you have to do every day. And it's just torture. It hurts so much. And I know some people might picture the end result. I know some, picture, some people might just think of all the good that's going to come out of this hard thing. When I'm doing those sit-ups, I'm just thinking, though for a little while, though for a little while. Like, you're going to be done in two minutes, and then you can go drink Mountain Dew and eat junk food, right? Like, like just get through it, because it's almost over. And sometimes we don't necessarily have to look at the big picture. We can just draw encouragement from the fact that, that God promises in the grand scheme of things that trial is just for a little while. And this one is a little bit more theological. Let me end with this. If we look through all the first nine verses of 1 Peter 1, there's just this beautiful theological progression, which is probably the Bible's most complete, even though it's concise, answer to the question of why does God allow hard things in the life of a believer? And it basically unfolds like this. God is telling us, Peter is telling us, that the emotional pain of suffering, it talks about that in 1 Peter 1, 6, It reestablishes the doctrine of God's initiating love. It talks about that in 1 Peter 1-2. God loves you. God chose you. God began to work so that you could respond to him. That's good news. 
And the hard things of life remind us that God loves us and God chose us and that God reached out to us so that we could respond to him. As we begin to be reminded through the hard things of life that God loves us and God chose us and God has a plan for us, it tells us there uh, in 1 Peter 1, 2 that, that, that this is all possible because Christ initiated a life-giving sacrifice. Jesus Christ died for us on the cross so that we could have new spiritual life. And uh, it tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4 that the next progression to that is that we're reminded of the eternal inheritance that the work of Christ brought in our life. Like, one day we will be with Jesus, one day we will be in heaven. It tells us in Revelation there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more trauma at that point. I, I think this process is uh, summarized by a great quote by Tim Keller, and he says this, In a lot of ways, being a Christian is kind of like uh, being a furnace in a house. The colder the air outside, eventually it gets really cool inside your own house. And then all of a sudden, it's the coldness that makes the heat of the furnace kick on. It's the grief of life that makes you go to your resources. It's the grief of life that makes you go to your roots as a Christian. It's the grief of life that brings you back to the gospel. It reminds you of what Jesus has done for you. That's what grief is for. The grief pushes you towards joy. It enhances the joy. The joy kicks on like the heat of a furnace and it overwhelms the grief even though the grief initiates it. Isn't that a beautiful way to kind of summarize what 1 Peter 1, 6-9 is all about? Uh, I haven't seen this in like 15 years, but I remember back when I was in college, uh, I was with a bunch of buddies and we saw this movie called The Matrix. It's kind of foggy, but basically there's this guy and he thinks he's just a regular guy and all these weird things happen and he realizes that he's in a simulation. He's in like this computer reenactment of life and he needs to break out of this pretend reality that he's in to be reminded of the experience of what the, the, the real world is like. Uh, I've been a senior pastor for almost a decade, and I would say on average about every three or four months I'm asked to officiate a funeral. And there's just a lot of grief uh, that comes through walking with a family through the death of a loved one. And every time I officiate a funeral and sit down with a, a grieving widow or somebody who's lost a child, I feel like Neo from The Matrix. I feel like it breaks me out of the values that I find myself surrounded by and, and be reminded of what this world is ultimately about. When I'm just going through a normal month, the kind of thoughts that I think about when I'm driving in traffic or sitting on my couch is like, you know what, I might be due for a new car. Got a lot of miles, got a miles on the, the current one, right? Or I'll think things like, oh, I can't believe that guy said that to me. He doesn't understand how lucky he is that, you know, I'm his friend or, or whatever. Like, he, he, should, he, he should never have thought of me in that way. Or, uh, man, these kids are driving me crazy. I need one night out of this house away from these kids. Like, those are the things that I think about. Like, like I need better stuff. People need to appreciate me more. I need to be on my own without anybody bothering me. Right, and then, all of a sudden, you see somebody crying at the casket that's lost a loved one, and it just breaks you out of those self-centered modes that we all get in, and it reminds you of the ultimately important things of life. And as I'm stacking up the chairs and, and cleaning up after the funeral, 
the thoughts that are going through my head are like, I can't wait to get home to my family. I can't wait to spend time with my kids. I can't wait to have a date with my wife. I'm so lucky at these people that God has put in my life and I need to take responsibility to teach them, to shepherd them, to love them, right? Does that make sense that we, we kind of go through this self-centered reality and then the hard things of life break us out of the matrix, remind us of the love that God has for us, the purpose that he has for us, and what he's equipped us to do in the lives of the people that we love the most. Um, I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and uh, wrap up our service with a final song. Uh, and as they do, let me just offer this summary statement of what I think 1 Peter 1, 6-9 is all about. I think Peter is reminding us that even though the trauma of life is painful, suffering is not purposeless for a Christian. Let me say that one more time. Although the trauma of life is painful, suffering is not purposeless for a Christian because God uses it to refine and increase the value of our faith uh, and our capacity for joy.